Hi, this is Jennifer Virgil, and you're listening to Out of Obscurity, the podcast where we talk lesser known, long forgotten, or recently forgotten films. And today we'll be talking about Inconceivable with Nicolas Cage. And my guest today is Ben Estabrook. Hello. Ben and I know each other from our very first summer in LA for both of us, me from Montana, him from Minnesota. And we are both interns and living at a fraternity house of all places during the summer. Fun, fun. And we bonded over film and exploring LA and all that jazz. So to start off with, I usually like to ask people what is their all-time favorite film if they have to only pick one. I think I would say Possession from the year 1981 by Zulowski. What other stuff has he done? Um, Not too much that I'm aware of. He did like a documentary and I think an- another horror movie. Hmm. I think he's probably most known for Possession. And Possession is definitely a horror film. Like that's how it's classified. I think so, but I'm not entirely sure. It's one of those films that's a little... Like, almost so arty that it gets hard to tell. Right. But I would say it's a horror film. It's a film that I've seen its posters so many times on the internet, whether it be on Letterboxd or Twitter. And I know a lot of people who absolutely love it, but I know next to nothing about it. Right, yeah. It's a confusing movie in general, even if you've seen it. But it's just very fun. The acting is just so over the top that it just becomes... Uh, It's just such a fun film. The camera's always moving. Is it kind of like Mulholland Drive level confusing? Oh, no. So much more than that. More? Yeah. Oh, Like The the first time I watched it was in um, just like this small theater that shows just like weird movies, Mm -hmm. more or less. And uh, I walked out of there not knowing what I just saw. But you liked it. You could, you definitely liked it. Yeah, but I loved it. A couple watches. No, I loved it from that first time. How many times have you seen it? Only twice, I think, actually. That's okay. A lot of my favorite films I've seen just once because I don't want it to get worse the second time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. There's maybe one or two films that I've liked better the second time I've seen them. Yeah. It's like a, when you watch a movie you saw as a kid and you realize how bad it is. Oh, Yeah. I think it'll be tough if, when or if I have kids to, to watch yeah. kids' movies with them because I'll just be analyzing them and critiquing them and be like, oh, this is so bad. You have such bad taste. Like a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, just steer clear of them. Keep your childhood intact. Another question I like to ask is, what's your favorite performance from a certain actress that we both happen to like? So I wanted to ask, what's your favorite Charlize Theron performance? I guess I would have to say my favorite role. I haven't seen that many of her movies, though, to be honest. But I think my favorite that I have seen would be Monster. That's great. And I only saw it recently for the first time. And I've been putting it off for a while just because the idea of having a film about a serial killer that's sympathetic to the killer. And that's from their point of view is it's very unattractive idea to me. It's something that is kind of uncomfortable. And also a female serial killer, Mm -hmm. which in and of itself is unique true and so the role is just a very interesting person from the get-go and then she played it very well she did i definitely felt something for her and i was surprised by how much i felt for her while the film does still hold her accountable which is important i think in a film like that but she's crazy unrecognizable in that film not just the way she looks which i think that the makeup team and the prosthetics and everything were terrific but i think that that alone wasn't what made the performance it was underneath that she really did transform into that character because i don't know if you've seen interviews with a real eileen i have she sounds just like her And she looks just like her. And the way she moves, it's different than any other role. And it's not concerned with looking nice, you know what I mean? Right. Probably the opposite. Yeah. You just a very down to earth, less than that, just very earthy look, under glamorized. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's not disrespectful to her though, even though she is this I guess, trailer trash type character, and she is a sex worker, it never feels like she's playing her in a way that she looks down on her. Well, I think just like the the real person, it, it's hard to really hate her. Like, you, you're definitely yeah. angry and disgusted by what she does, but it's very hard to hate her. Yeah. Unlike some other serial killers where you can just flat out disregard their well-being and feelings. It's a sad story. Her story is really sad. Her upbringing is really sad. And at the end of the day, it 
feels like she's equally a victim as well as a perpetrator. I mean, she's definitely still inflicted violence on people that didn't deserve it, but she also had a lot of issues and a lot of violence that came her way. And I think the film also has something to say about the way society treats people like her. And I don't know if society is to blame for her actions, but that definitely played a part in how she turned out. Yeah, which is true for any serial killer, (laughs) but the film in general did a good job of really presenting all those pieces. Exactly. It's a great role. It's a great performance. My personal favorite is Young Adult. Yeah, I haven't seen that. That's okay. You actually, I think, would quite like it. It's by the writer and director of Juno, uh, Diablo Cody and Jason Reitman. I guess it would technically be a very dark comedy. And it's another performance where Shirley's doesn't care if you like her. And she's not trying to play a part that the audience can sympathize with, which I think makes it a lot harder when you're playing a role that you would never, ever be friends with this person in real life. And you don't know if you want her to succeed or not, because basically her character, she's in her 30s, I guess. And she is now a young adult writer of novels. And she comes back to her hometown. I think it's like her 20th anniversary of her high school's graduating class. And she comes back with the aim of winning back her high school boyfriend, despite the fact that he's married and just had a baby. She just, like, does not give a shit. Yeah, savage. It is very savage. She's just this rude, sort of doesn't give a regard for anyone else's feelings kind of character. And it's kind of fun to watch, for sure, her play that. But it slowly peels back the layers, and you see that there's reasons that she's that way. And she's super insecure, even though she puts on this very confident air. And it just has this really honest air to it, that performance. That doesn't have any pretenses, and I really like it. I feel like I want to see it now. It's good. Good Charlie's performances all around. Yep. So what was the last film you saw in theaters? I know you don't go as often as probably I do, but I'd still like to hear. Yeah, it was the new Star Wars. Okay. And are you a Star Wars fan? I've never been super into it. I mean, I saw the originals growing up, but like I missed a lot of the newer ones. Just wasn't that interested in seeing them. So probably not a fan because Star Wars is such an established franchise. And I think to be a fan of it, you really need to be more committed than I am. So what did you think of the new one? Because I know it's kind of split fan reactions on it. Right. Well, like I said, without the context of the newer ones that came before it, I thought it was fun. Mm -hmm. I walked out having enjoyed it, but some parts did feel a little commercialized, maybe a little pandering. I totally agree. Just like with all the animals and stuff. The porks. My first thought, however cynical, was these things are literally only here to sell merchandise. Yeah. I mean, they're cute. They are cute, but... I feel like... They're playing on my sympathies. There wasn't a reason for them to be there in the plot. Right. I thought it was kind of cheesy in a way that I didn't enjoy. I didn't have a lot of fun with it. I didn't feel a lot of energy. I thought it was really long. Yeah. The things that I really liked was Laura Dern. I loved her. And I think just the fact that it was her. I think if her same character had been played by someone else, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much. But I just love her. And it was just really fun to see her in a Star Wars movie. And I liked her character. Yeah, that was. she was probably my favorite character in that movie. Mm-hmm personally preferred the last one a lot more even though i think a lot of the critiques that suggest it's really similar to a new hope are correct i had a lot more fun with that one i like the characters a lot better i want to see it the last film that i saw was a wrinkle in time how was that well (laughs) it wasn't good (laughs) i think it was even a little bad And I I feel like people are afraid to say that it isn't good because it is from Ava DuVernay, who did Selma. And she is a really cool person and a really talented director. And the film had a female director and it had a female writer and it had a largely female cast and it had a very diverse cast. So there was a lot of excitement for the film. And I felt that excitement as well, even though this isn't necessarily a genre kids fantasy that I really care for. I was still looking forward to the film and I was really disappointed with it. I mean, it was fun to see Oprah Winfrey and Mindy Colleen and Reese Witherspoon, all of whom I really like, in these sort of larger-than-life roles. But it was still really bland and really incomplete as a film, I felt. Yeah, I haven't really wanted to see it because I read the books as a kid and just kind of how that works out that I feel like they're never that good, the movies. From what I remember, it seemed like it would not have been a good film adaptation, and it wasn't. I just think the plot is maybe too ambitious and confusing, perhaps, for it to be made into a good film. So it almost feels like they never should have attempted it to begin with. Yeah. 
And it just had such a simplistic view of good and evil, which I hate. And it was delivered by the three kids in that film who I just thought were not worth watching. And I feel like you're not supposed to criticize kids. But when you have films like The Florida Project and Room, where little kids, like six-year-old kids, are delivering such incredible performances, you can't really excuse this in such a big budget film. Right. Like, on the one hand, you don't want to be, like, torturing kids into being better actors. But at the same time, like, some kids are better actors than others. Yeah, hire kids who are more talented. Although, they didn't have the easiest script to work with, I'll be honest. Yeah, it's probably confusing. It's somehow confusing, but too simplistic at the same time. Oh, that's never good. I mean, the cinematography is good, if, if we want to talk highlights. The cinematography is good. Reese Witherspoon... I'm trying to think of a way to say this. Reese Witherspoon literally transforms into a giant Pokemon type piece of lettuce and they all ride on her. So that that's good. Yeah. Tagline for the movie. Yep, right on the poster. Reese Witherspoon becomes lettuce. For that alone. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't think she was gonna turn back either. I was like, is this is that it? Whoa. Spoilers. (laughs) She knows she was. So what about, what's the last thing that you watched at home? Well, I recently watched a movie, uh, He Never mm-hmm. Died. I'm not sure who the director is off the top of my head, but it starred Henry Rollins. He's Swedish, I think, but it was very good. I enjoyed it. What's like the log line? Essentially, it's there's a big twist at the end, but throughout most of the movie, you're just seeing Henry Rollins play this very kind of a aloof, disinterested man, and he just keeps getting thrown into all these exceedingly dramatic plots mm-hmm. like gangsters and stuff like that up until the end where everything kind of comes to a head and you figure out what his deal is was it a twist you saw coming no no not not at all oh okay so it's one of those films yeah but maybe that was just me maybe it is super obvious were you bored leading up to the twist I don't think so. I think I was so curious that it kind of keeps you enthralled in everything that's happening. And there are other characters involved in his life that are very real people that have human emotions that he doesn't seem to share. So like he has a daughter that he didn't know he had that gets introduced into his life and like an ex-wife and there's a waitress that he meets. So there's all these people trying to make a connection with him. And so that's kind of fun to see play out. I'm intrigued. Did you watch it on Netflix or anything, or is it you just found it on your own? No, it was on Netflix, oh, okay. I believe. Cool. I'm, I'm not looking into it. What was the last movie you saw? Glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> the last one I saw was Ida, which is a Polish film from a few years ago. And it's not my first time seeing it. It's probably my third time or fourth time watching it. Whoa. This is a film that's one of my all-time favorites and that I'm constantly drawn to. Hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, are you? I remember seeing just like the the cover art. It's a very slim film. It's like 80 minutes and it's all shot in black and white. Just the most gorgeous cinematography you can imagine. It's really striking and beautiful. And it tells this really intimate and deeply personal story that deals with religion and identity and the lingering effects of war and the Holocaust. Huh. I just really wanted to revisit it. Essentially, this young woman, she grew up in a Catholic orphanage, and she's about to take her vows as a nun. But before she does so, she meets her only living relative, which is her aunt, who she didn't know existed. And she tells her that she's actually Jewish and that her parents were killed in the Holocaust. And the two of them go on this trip to find out where her parents were buried. So she's just kind of reconnecting and coming to terms with this history she knew nothing about? Exactly, because she grew up Catholic. And it's a very somber film in that there's not a ton of dialogue, especially from her, even though she is the lead character. It's a lot of just her eyes or the way she moves her head. I mean, that's hard to do. Yeah, that conveys so much. And the relationship between her and her aunt is really fascinating. And it's one of my all-time favorite films, especially if you enjoy like post-World War II stories, I would recommend it. Or if you're interested in films about nuns, which for whatever reason, I really, really am. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. There's just something about the way that films about nuns explore female relationships and also Mm. identity and religion and suppression and also surprisingly deal with sexuality. A lot of films about nuns. Yeah, because I think that's part of the whole... um 
they're not able to have sexual relations right. after they take their vows. I guess that's I could see why the that could be a focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the last thing I watched, and I'm glad I did. I wanted to ask, I know your favorite genre is horror, just from knowing you, and what about your least favorite genre? And then within that genre, what is your favorite film? I guess I would have to say just like war films mm-hmm. or patriotic films. And then within that, I'm not sure. There are some good ones, so mm-hmm. like uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. I just don't really like when they get over the top with the patriotism or kind of feel this very masculine kind of rage-filled junkhead just going into the heats of battle type of thing. Right. And they definitely have a tendency to dehumanize the enemy, which I don't think is a good thing in art. Yeah, they get a little simplistic in that way. Right. Which I just can't get behind. I don't think war should be black and white. Yeah, just when they examine it with a little bit more of a cynical lens, then I'm okay with it. So you would say probably Saving Private Ryan? That's okay because it's it's very Hollywood and meant for the masses, but I feel like it does an okay job of not making it so much about just like mass murder and eliminating the enemy. It's more about like individuals. Right. It's about trying to save someone else right so it's got themes that i can identify with a little bit better and i think that film is clearly war is hell kind of film it's not glorifying war at all right that's a good one what's your least favorite genre (sighs) i was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask (laughs) (laughs) i mean you don't have to answer well i want to say war too but since you just said it and i think my answer would be the exact same i will say action like pure action just a straight action film i find really uninteresting i also think they're super masculine and they're destructive and chaotic and the plot is often really weak in my opinion yeah and i just don't feel a lot of excitement watching it which is the reason you watch it i do like some action Mm -hmm. i guess it just depends what if it was a female lead? Because like like you said, some of them are very hyper-masculine. And if you had just a woman doing all the same things, mm-hmm. I feel like I immediately enjoy those better. Well, I was going to say for what my favorite within this genre would be probably Mad Max Fury Road. Because it's just so well done. It's so exciting. It's so well shot and energetic and chaotic, but beautifully so. Yeah. And I love that it's got so many female characters and strong female characters and especially Charlize's character is this really impressive protagonist who is not sexualized really in any way and she's shown to be just as capable as Max is if not more so because I think there's one point when he can't make the shot and he hands her the gun and so you have this respect between them too which is really nice and there's not this underlying sexual tension yeah I like that because it's it's this dystopian kind of take on some future. And I just feel like if you're going to make that kind of world, there's no reason to perpetuate the same type of sexism we have in our universe. Right. So I think it's a really, really good film. And there's a lot of different elements that I enjoy from it. And I think the themes and the plot are really strong. Yeah. And plus for an action movie, it is very fun to watch. It is. Just with, without all the... Like everything artistic about it, it is a good action movie. Right. I mean, the scene of the guy with the guitar on the war rig. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So to talk about something a little more recent than that, the film Love, Simon just came out and I have yet to see it myself. And based on your last film in theater, I'm guessing you haven't watched it yet either. Yeah. And this looks like your basic teen rom-com that would not normally appeal, I think, to either of us. But what's exciting about it is a studio film that's been pushed really hard. A lot of money has gone into promoting it and it has a gay protagonist. Yeah, very exciting. Like you said, very advertised. Like they marketed very, heavily just to kind of just what would be your typical just family audience you know yeah which is good to see there's been a lot of really positive reaction that i've noticed especially on social media and i've heard a lot of people talk about how much it means to them to see this kind of representation and to see a story like this told through the lens of a young gay man and i've actually read that some people have come out to their family and friends because of the film. So I thought maybe we could talk about some LGBT films that meant a lot to us when we were younger or now and that have been really strong representation for us. Yeah, sure. That'd be fun. Uh, So I guess, I mean, there are so many. Mm Mm-hmm. But if I had to pick just one that was the most impactful, it would be a beautiful thing. 
Uh, it came out in like the mid 90s, but I didn't see it until much later. I saw it when I was at the age or very close in age to the main characters in the movie. Yeah, that always helped. And I think what I liked so much about it was, you know, it wasn't a very glamorous or even super exciting movie. It was just kind of like about these two people figuring out these feelings mm -hmm. they're having. Plus, it introduced me to the music of Mama Cass, which I may not have heard otherwise. So it's not an American film, you said, right? Right. It's uh, in the UK. Hmm. Well, I've never seen it. I've never heard of it, I don't think, either. But I really want to watch it now. There's so much good queer cinema, and I feel like the last few years have just been getting better and better and more prolific. Of course, like with something like Moonlight not just coming out, which is great, but winning the Oscar for Best Picture, it's definitely becoming easier to find these films, I think. Right. Because I definitely remember just like searching frantically online to try to find stuff. Yeah. And the stuff I watched, I'd never heard of. Right. They're kind of maybe a little bit more underground. Mm -hmm. Not so much anymore, but for sure in the past. Right. Some ones that I watched, I think, when I was a little bit younger that were really important for me, even though they're not necessarily the best films, to be honest. And I don't know if I would call them my favorites anymore. I watched Kiss Me, and it's a Swedish film. Okay. It's a really well done sweet romance, sweet like in um lesbian characters. And it falls into a lot of the same trappings as a lot of other lesbian films and sort of recycles plots, but it's really beautiful and it's well done and it's such a sweet romance. And it was just so nice just to see like a really pure romance and like also well produced with, you know, two women at its center. So that was really a good one for me to watch. And I don't know if it would hold up much on a rewatch, but at the time I was really happy to see it. Yeah. And then, I mean, this is such a cheesy one, but I mean, I watched it when I was younger and it was so fun. It was Debs. Yeah. Okay, you're familiar with it. Yeah, it's yeah. these two, like, it's these teen spies and one of the teen spies falls in love with, like, the big villain that they're all going after. It's just such a cute, like, cheesy teen movie kind of, but I really thought that was so cute and that was so fun. And it's geared towards teenagers, so it was really cute to see it. And that came out, I think, in, like, 2004. But I think the one that definitely has made the biggest impact on me, even though it did come out a little bit later, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> I can't not mention it. So that one is my favorite film of all time. I just think it's incredibly beautiful. And I really resonated with the character of Therese. I really connected with her. And Rooney Mara's performance as her is fabulous. And I, I had read the book beforehand. And I think my experience reading the book was even more powerful because I read it at a time where I think I really needed to read it because I was, I think, 18 or I was 19 and I just moved to New York City. So I was the same age in same location as the protagonist, Therese. And I was sort of just starting to realize that I was attracted and interested in women. And I was attending a very strictly religious and conservative college where I didn't feel like I had any avenue to explore that despite being in a very you know liberal community of New York City. I was in this sort of subsection that was very conservative and I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. So I just was Googling like lesbian cinema books and films and just kind of trying to like, you know, because yeah. that's the first place I turned to was media. Seeing other stories, whether they're fictional or not, sort of really helped me come to terms with my own story, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say media was definitely the first place I looked to to try and sort things out. Right. I think you're just looking to see, especially if you're from smaller towns like we are, mm -hmm. you have all these feelings that you think are, I don't want to say wrong, but you definitely don't see other people having them. Mm-hmm. And so you, you turn to movies and books to just try and connect with other people that are like you. Right. Getting to see other perspectives was super important. There's a lot more to say about this, but we should probably get to the actual film that we're here to discuss. Right. We could probably talk about this for a whole episode. It's true. Maybe we should another time. So the film is inconceivable and it's available on netflix to start with i guess i will read the brief little description that netflix has for the film so you can get a sense of the way it's being advertised okay they open the doors of their home to her never expecting she'd be the house guest from hell so when i saw that i was thinking horror yeah same i mean that's what it sounds like it sounds like a demon or she's gonna murder them all Something like that. Yeah, like Rosemary's Baby type of thing. Yeah, which turns out not to be the case. No, it's very much not a supernatural movie. No. I, maybe it would have been better if it was. It would have been a different movie for sure. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. It's, 
it's hard to compare, but I mean, it couldn't have gotten a ton worse. Just a baby stealing a wit. <laughs> so the film is essentially about a couple named Angela and Brian who have a four-year-old daughter named Cora and... And they meet another young mother and Angela sort of is instantly drawn to her and they form this really strong connection. And her name is Katie. And because Angela and Brian have trouble conceiving and they want to have another child, they decide that she should be their surrogate. And so they invite her and her daughter, Maddie, to come live with them. And it sort of takes a nasty turn and things don't happen as expected. And they they realize that she's a little bit crazy. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Okay, maybe a lot. I was going to say just a little bit, but... That's probably yeah, no, that's not fair. she's crazy. I mean, should the film have portrayed her that way? Maybe not, but was she portrayed that way? Yes. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> what would you say was the most ridiculous moment in the film to you? For me, the scene that sticks out the most is there's a scene where Katie is just kind of in Angela and Brian's backyard, and she just walks naked into their swimming pool at night. Right. And who's watching but Nicolas Cage out the window. Right. And I mean, there's no confirmation that she notices Nicolas Cage, but I think the editing kind of suggests some type of interaction there. But it's just like, why is she doing that? That's very weird. That's a weird thing to do. It is weird. And it's shot in such like a sexy way that it was like kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. And also, I should draw attention, I think, to the fact that she's not wearing a bra, but she is wearing underwear. And I just personally feel like you would either go bra and underwear like a bikini or completely nude and skinny dip. Like, why would you bother taking off your bra if you're going to let your underwear get wet? Yeah. Why would you do it at all? (laughs) But if you want to get even deeper, that's just everything she's doing just doesn't make sense. Not exactly, no. Even after the twist or, like, big reveal, like, does her motivations become super clear? Right. But then I think you also have that end as she's swimming. The camera just kind of goes into (laughs) a close-up of her eyes, which the film does, like, all the time. Yes. It's kind of a little obsessed with her her eyes, yeah. I think it's even in... Yeah, we get it. It's in when the title displays in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You see these two eyes... So it's like, we get it. Eyes. Yeah, whoever was editing that was really like, no, 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 you guys don't get it. Come on. Come more on. eyes. <laughs> but yeah, so it it made, it definitely helped portray Katie as like telling the viewer that there's something not right with her. Mm-hmm. But overall, that scene was unusual. It was. To me, I think the most ridiculous moment is... And this is going to be a spoiler, I think, at least a bit of a spoiler, not the whole film, but can't really talk about it without going into it. Is So Katie winds up killing Linda, who's the friend of both her and Angela, and she's also her sort of secret lesbian lover, which normally I'm... I'm always up for a surprise lesbian subplot. No question about it. But in this film, I really could have done without it, to be honest. It was confusing more than anything else. And it was just so problematic. It was a really bad depiction of, like, queer women. And then one gets killed, of course. So So crazy and dead are the two queer women in this film. Yep. (laughs) Crazy and dead. But so... To go back to my most ridiculous moment is after her death, her body is weighed down by just like a weight that she hits her with in the ocean. Like she doesn't bother trying to like really cover it up well or stage anything. And then the next scene, Linda's body is floating on the by the docks and you see this giant gash at the side of her head where she was hit. And then, her, you know, two, two people who are walking on the dock discover it and they're like, oh. and then you hear that from Angela oh you know her Linda's boating accident (laughs) and it it just doesn't make any sense because we don't see any boats right she didn't bother to stage anything we have no knowledge that Linda was a boat driver that Linda even owned a boat yeah Uh, so there's kind of no reason to it's just why a boating accident like why why wouldn't they just have her drown Like an accidental drowning. Why did it have to be a boating accident? I know. And there's a giant gash from where she was hit. Why were the police not investigating this? Why automatically a boating accident? Where's the boat that she was in? That's my question. Was she on the boat with anyone? Maybe it skips over a scene where Katie concocted this elaborate boating (laughs) 
cover up. Yeah, but come on, just show a minute of it. Just show a quick minute <laughs> of her driving the boat over there, dropping her body in it, something. Yeah, no, I agree. That was probably the only part in the movie I would say is actually very funny. It makes no sense. Right. I think what's kind of sad about this film is that it is pretty boring. It's not so bad. It's cheesy and funny. And it's not exciting in the way it wants to be. It's not thrilling either. So it's just kind of boring at the end of the day. The pacing is just yeah, really poor. The pacing, the pacing is ruined off. this movie more or less. Yeah, I I think it was really badly directed too. And that didn't it's help. like a, what is it? Like 100, 110 minute film. And I think over half of it is kind of just like not even a thriller. I would agree. I was at the beginning. I didn't really know where this was going to go. So very boring just because of the pacing. It needed to be building towards something, which I guess it was, but just not fast enough and not in the most intriguing way. Well, I think it went about building it up for so long. And then when you finally got to the thrilling part of the movie, it was like over before it started. Yeah, it was like just there for like a minute. And I really wanted that to go on and on. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the best part about this movie is just the interaction between uh, Angela and Katie. And that's like I agree. The, the shortest part in the end. And I think Katie is probably the strongest actress there. Or at least she's the strongest performer. She is really fun to watch. She's an intriguing character. And it's and it's fun how she can do the most normal, like casual things, like tucking her kid in bed or making breakfast or whatever, and just makes it so creepy. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree that she was the strongest actress in this film. Poor Nicolas Cage didn't have much to do at all. No, he's almost like a non-character. Yeah, you would think in a movie that's kind of crazy and a little outlandish, he would be the craziest one. That's kind of what he's known for. But nope, he was kind of just this solid supporting character. Right. So why do you think someone who's on Netflix would click on this film? Because I'm assuming they wouldn't have heard of it either. But what do you think the big draw would be? I would say seeing Nicolas Cage is in it is probably yeah. what would get a lot of people to click on it. I know uh, you had sent me a list of possible movies to watch and my roommate watched it with me. And as I was just going through the list, he was like, well, there's only one of them that has Nicolas Cage in it. <laughs> and I feel like that's something, though, that is very reasonable for a lot of people. Like, you have this big name in this movie that you've never heard of. Kind of gives it a little bit more prominence or authority, I guess. I definitely am guilty of watching a film just because an actor or actress I like is in it. Even though I've seen the trailer oh. and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't look like something I'm that interested in. But then I'm like, oh, but Riley Keough is in it or whoever is in it. And I'm like, oh, gotta see it now. Oscar Isaac. I love him. <laughs> yeah. I think why someone might click on this film is they're looking for sort of an obscure little horror film. They're looking to be scared and for a little popcorn horror thriller. And I don't know if they'll necessarily get that in the film, but the way it looks on Netflix before you click on it sort of fits that bill. Yeah, I would agree with that. It does look spooky for sure. And the very beginning is very spooky, the first few minutes. Yeah. Because at the very beginning, it's a flashback that deals with Katie's backstory. And it has kind of a cool opening shot, actually. It's one shot with the camera going through the door of the house and going all the way up the stairs and finding her. And she's rushing around. And she's fussing with this baby, trying to get it ready to run out the house. And I was like, oh, is there a ghost in the house? And, I mean, it was not <laughs> yeah. the case. But would have been cool if there was. Yeah, maybe there was. We just didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, ghosts can be invisible. Yeah. But yeah, it did have kind of that misleading beginning. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, who do you think the target audience for this film was? Like when they were making it, who do you think they were envisioning would be watching and enjoying it? I think I would have to say just like suburban moms. Definitely moms. Yeah, I'll just generalize to moms. It's definitely got a huge lifetime vibe to it. Yeah. So it's kind of their audience is who they're looking, I think, to get with this one. I had to do some research to make sure it didn't show on Lifetime. <laughs> no, I wonder if it actually was even in theaters. Let me check. So it was released in select theaters in video on demand on June 30th. Okay, so 
they weren't expecting a lot of people to see it at first then if it was just straight to video as well. Right. Although this is kind of interesting. The project was originally unveiled during the 2014 Sundance Film Festival. And who was it announced by? None other than Lindsay Lohan, who wanted to produce and star in it. Whoa. Didn't know that. It's weird that it happened at Sundance. That's really strange to me, considering how the film turned out. But it kind of makes sense that Lindsay Lohan would want to be in it, I guess. Yeah, I feel like it's a role she could do well in. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of sad, actually. So she was really interested in producing it, and they were casting it. And so the director and writer said that the studio just didn't want her to be a part of it, which is just kind of sad that she was really interested in being Katie in it. And they just didn't want to take the chance on her. Yeah, which stinks, because it kind of seems like maybe she was part of the reason it even got uh, made. Well, she was developing it, it sounds like. But I think, to be honest, though, the actress that they did get, Nikki Whelan, did a better job, probably, than she would have done. Yeah, that's probably fair. Mm -hmm. But, you know, more people might have saw it with with Lindsay Lohan, because she is a name, you know? I've never heard of Nikki Whelan, but I've definitely heard of Lindsay Lohan, for better or worse. Not Personally, I wouldn't seek out a film because of her. But that would be like, oh, oh, Lindsay Lohan is in this. Maybe I'll click on that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just like Nicolas Cage. But I think I'd be more inclined to click on it if it was Lindsay Lohan instead right. of And Nicolas I think she could have done she could have done crazy well, maybe a little too well. You know, maybe she couldn't have pulled off the certain sexiness that this character has. Because this character's sex appeal is like really significant to the film, I think. And I am curious if she watched the film later, if she's seen it on Netflix. Yeah. If she did, I'm sure she wasn't too thrilled with it. Yeah, I bet she was like, you know what? I didn't need it. (laughs) Dodged a bullet there. (laughs) I mean, at this point, I think being in any movie would probably be good for her. That's true. The last thing she was in was The Canyons in 2013. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. But she does have two films coming out in 2018, The Shadows Within and Frame. Hmm. But neither of those films have Wikipedia pages, so that doesn't... (laughs) super well. well keep your eyes peeled <laughs> look we're gonna do an episode on one of those probably in the <laughs> next year if she was in this movie the the katie character would be mm-hmm. able to be just as creepy if not even creepier with lohan oh but i feel like the kind of mysterious allure that uh nikki whalen was able to kind of get mm-hmm. across would have been more more edgy with lohan it would have been less subtle i think it would have been yeah. fun. For you know sure. what? I'm growing on it. I'm growing on it. <laughs> At first I was like, yeah, probably good thing she wasn't. But now I'm like, you know what? Give her a chance. I demand a remake. A deep dive into Lindsay Lohan. So did you have a favorite moment from the film? Hmm. I guess my favorite part in the movie, just mostly because of, I guess this whole movie was kind of boring. <laughs> and that was kind of the, the one moment where I like had to open my eyes because I wasn't expecting it to happen. Is just when Katie, just in argument with Angela, Angela's holding a knife in defense, and Katie just pretty much shoves the knife into her stomach, like her pregnant belly, which is ridiculous. It's insane because the whole film is essentially about how much Katie values motherhood and how important it is to her, and how she doesn't think anyone else, including Angela, is deserving of being a mother, especially to her children. So to see her just do that was so wild. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. It's like, you could kill your own baby, and that's the whole reason you're doing all of this. Right. It was... No, I was... I was concerned. I was concerned. It was a pretty intense moment, and then she just, like, fight club-style beats herself up. It was probably my favorite scene. It was a good moment. It was the climax, and I wish it had lasted a little bit longer. It was so short. I know. It's just not enough. You have a whole, all of this time being spent on buildup, and then there's just no release. Yes. So I think for me, my personal favorite moment was when Donna, who's Brian's mom, is in conversation with Angela, and she's telling her basically, oh, you shouldn't trust Katie. And this is early on when Angela and Katie are still really close. And Angela is like, why? And she just out of the blue says, and with no evidence, there's no way that she should have really known at all. She's like, well, Linda and Katie are sleeping together. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just really yeah. fun because Donna is played by Faye Dunaway, who is this really classic film actress. 
the film Network is one of my favorite films of all time, and her work in it is amazing. So it was just really enjoyable for me personally to see Faye Dunaway just out these two women <laughs> and just have really good gaydar. Yeah. And Angela didn't believe her either. Right. I think she did eventually, but it was only because Donna said that. Right. It was fun to see her here because I did not expect it at all. I kept thinking, why are they featuring this grandma or this mother so much? And then I was like, she looks really familiar, even though she's like older. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay. Why? (laughs) But okay. But why are you in this movie? Right. Well, I read that the director and writer said that this part would be a small comeback role. And I'm like, no, this is not a comeback role for her. She barely does anything at all. And she doesn't need to come back. Everyone still knows who she is. Right. It's a bizarre choice for me, but she was also in the Bye Bye Man last year. So she just doesn't really give a fuck anymore. (laughs) I think she's just trying to get that paycheck. Yeah. Or maybe she's just there to kind of help out this new director. Maybe try and... Who knows? I mean... Maybe it's just a little charity. (laughs) Whatever. I mean, she does fine in this role. It just requires zero of her, similar to Nicolas Cage. So where do you think you would put this film on a scale from Hallmark to Criterion Collection? And I I feel like I already know your answer. Yeah, Lifetime for sure. It's very Lifetime. My roommate called it an inversion of Lifetime, Mm -hmm. but it's almost, which I would agree with. And it is like something Lifetime would try to make to feel more edgy or something. Mm-hmm. But it would still be on Lifetime. Right. And very much feel like Lifetime. Just a little playing with the themes a little bit. Mm-hmm. It felt exactly like the Lifetime film to me, except it was a little bit more boring and a little less fun. And I guess the acting was probably a little bit better. Yeah. And I feel like for sure it just didn't have that excitement that Lifetime movies are kind of known for. Yeah, for better or worse. It's melodrama, right? But this, I feel like, was not melodrama. It plays on the exact same themes, though. And it's interesting how many films do play on these themes, whether they're on Lifetime or, or not. Like, in terms of a mother having to protect her family from this outside force, this young, attractive woman is coming to take over and steal her children away and steal her husband etc etc and it's one of those things where it's like why are there so many films about this theme it clearly is playing on some very real insecurities women and mothers have yeah like i can totally see with when you have a maid or a nanny or something Mm -hmm. you do have this person that is like you can be, be easily become jealous that they're more involved in your child's life than you are right and i feel like it's really kind of feeding on that anxiety like how good of a mother are you really there's a lot of tension between the two, even before she knows that, you know, she's planning on, spoiler, she's planning on taking all of her kids away. But even before that, she doesn't like the idea of her taking her spot as a mother, just taking care of them as a nanny, because she's home all the time and she's a working mom. Right. And I actually was a nanny for a couple of months, actually, when I lived in New York City after I graduated high school. And the mom did not like me at all. I think there is a certain degree of jealousy there, which is definitely unwarranted. At least it was in my case. But you can see how mothers don't want their kids to like you better than they like them. And they don't want them to rely on you more than they do them, which is kind of ridiculous considering how many hours you're there and everything. And that you're obviously not their mom, but there's definitely resentment there. Yeah, I feel like I can understand that feeling, though. Mm -hmm. I can understand that jealousy. Yeah, it's too bad that they have to make films, though, that they're always the villain. There can never be any positive ones. Although I guess the film Tully that just came out with Charlize Theron, or that's coming out soon, I saw that Sundance kind of is a good example of that with a night nurse. But yeah, in my case, I had a very negative experience. And when she was home and I was there, she would have me shine the shoes of the kids. (laughs) (laughs) And she would make me like do things that were not my job, just kind of like, almost demean me and to be like no you know you work for me right you kind of felt like she was just doing it to kind of get you out of the way right yeah that's weird but yeah i think the film does touch on some interesting subjects yeah for sure the film also really talks a lot about egg donation which is something that i don't know if i've seen another film that actually discusses it to be honest yeah i was thinking the same thing and i think it's 
probably what I found most interesting about it because it did kind of seem like this very, even though the story itself is very almost cliche feeling, mm-hmm. it had this really interesting modern topical twist of just, you know, you don't have to get pregnant by conventional methods anymore. Yeah. There's surrogatism and there's IVF and just all these other ways where you can conceive a child. Mm-hmm even if your body isn't able to do it normally. Right. I think exploring the feelings and emotions of someone who donates their eggs is really interesting. I think the film does it in a really poor way. But I think it's an interesting idea of like, how does that affect you? You know, because that is giving a part of yourself. You are essentially having a biological child out there somewhere, but you don't know anything about it. You don't know the details of who's raising it. It's an interesting thought. I think a lot of the times from what I've read, you don't know even if it was successful or not. So you don't know if they wound up successfully having a child with your egg or not. So you have no idea if there's a kid out there that has your DNA, which is scary. And I don't know, it's interesting because it's something that, to be honest, I thought about doing because it is a sizable amount of money that you get from it and it's a really tempting option and it's something that is in the moment you're like oh this would be an easy way to get money and this would be a nice thing to do for someone so why not it's not gonna harm me but it's something that that there is probably an emotional response to that you might not think of in the moment right you don't really think about it and so it's good that this movie kind of that was its focus really like just talking about um what this movie does in a very modern way is you always have these issues of like paternity like who's the father mm-hmm. like like maury and dr phil and stuff like that but this movie the question i can't think of another movie where it does this but the question is like who's the mother mm-hmm And normally with traditional childbirth, the reason it's not talked about is because it's never a question because you have to have the baby. It comes from you. And so there's no questioning like if you're the mother or not. But in this movie, it very much like that's a very big issue is like who is the mother? So I feel like it's really kind of talking on the more theoretical level. It's really having this discussion about all these different emotions that go with being a woman, being a mother, and what that's like today, and how there are just all these new feelings that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether being a working mother or stay-at-home mother, that's a big issue within the film. And you have these two extremes represented by the different characters. Yep. Like, I could totally see this being, like, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where Angela kind of portrays, like, the independent... Like, this woman who is a person apart from just being a mother. And then Katie kind of represents just, like, the all-consuming, overbearing, attached mother. Right, because in in her view, being a mother is her entire life, is her job, is her purpose. Whereas Angela, she's going back to work, you know, and... She has friends outside of it. She has a social life. I feel like the film, I don't know what it's trying to say ultimately. Maybe that you need to come to some sort of mix in between them because both extremes are are not ideal. Yeah, maybe. It doesn't really have a super clear message Uh, to it. but The ending is not as as satisfying or symbolic as I'd like it to be. Right. Even though there are a lot of things you can like analyze and theorize about this movie... Especially in regards Mm -hmm. to just femininity and women and motherhood. In the end, you're almost doing it because you want to find something in there to make this worthwhile. Right. But it definitely, there's something in there about children. Just like how big a part of your life children can be. And in this movie, they're kind of objects to be fought over. Yeah. And it's talking about it in a way that's very modern because we do see this situation where they can be objects more or less. Yeah. So if if you're kind of looking at it as like Angela is the independent woman and Katie is like the all-consumed mother or whatever, it's interesting that they kind of have this intense back and forth. Mm Mm-hmm. Up until the second that she gives birth. And then it's like once she has the baby, the movie's over, essentially. The tension's gone, and it just kind of comes to a standstill. And there's a happy ending, which I thought was... I wasn't expecting, and I almost wish it wasn't a happy ending. It did kind of flatline, but I mean, the whole film is about trying to have this child. 
Right. And the struggles of that. And then once the child's born, the movie's over because the pregnancy is over. It almost kind of seems like that's how it works. Like as a woman, when you get pregnant, you have nine months where you're dealing with all of these just very confusing and different experiences that you're probably not fully prepared for. But then the nine months is over and it's just like, well, the the happy ending, you know, life goes on. Is it ever really enough time to come to terms with what's happening? I doubt it. Yeah, because they just instantly sort of recover after what's happened and all of a sudden they're a happy family. It's almost like they weren't pregnant at all. Well, they never were. Ah, true. Inconceivable. (laughs) Yep. Gosh, that title. That title. (laughs) Now playing on (laughs) Lifetime. Wouldn't it be funny if Lifetime turned it down and then they had to go to Netflix? Yeah, that would be really funny. Well, the thing about Lifetime is that it is a good idea, I think having a network that focuses on female stories and female-led films and and television shows. And I think it's just implemented so poorly is the problem. If I was in charge of Lifetime, I would be focusing on obtaining like independent films from female directors and female writers, first of all. I don't have the stats, but I guarantee a lot of those films are not from female writers and directors, just like this film. I could tell this film had a male writer and it did. So that would be my first priority because I think if they focused on getting actual women to tell their stories and sort of making sure that these were a diverse group of women and not just white women, then it could be really interesting. Yeah, but instead it kind of feels like it's just geared towards white, middle, upper class women. Yeah, it's just the thing is it doesn't need to be that way. Right. It is frustrating because it's a really good idea and it's just been reduced to a joke. So I think the final question I have is, do you think this film deserves to stay in obscurity or not? Yes, I think I would recommend it stay there. Me too. I am not even sure it needs to be on Netflix at all. Yeah, I think it could have been so much better. Like, there was nothing really big wrong with it. It It's mostly just the way it was paced that really kind of ruined it. But I think there was really a lot that was good in the movie if it was just done very differently. I'm not even that big of a fan of the story at all, to be honest. But I agree that it's not something that needs to be seen by the masses by any means. And I'm always happy to hear your like in-depth analysis and the way you grab theories from something. Yeah. But I think we put more thought into this film than the actual filmmakers, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it just overall, like you can analyze and find cool themes in it. And this movie did have some interesting modern themes to it, but... It's got to be a good movie, too. And I just don't think it was. Yeah, this is actually the exact way I feel about A Wrinkle in Time. (laughs) It has all these cool elements to it, but it's still not a good film. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. Right, because it's entertainment. I mean, we we like to think it's so much more. But at the end of the day, it is entertainment. Right. It's kind of failing in some regards if it doesn't entertain I think this film needed to either up the crazy and campiness or it needed to really up the scares and the element of horror and make it a better thriller. Right. I think it should have just been written way more condensed. Like, I just don't think it needed Mm -hmm. all the buildup that it had. Or if anything, then it needed to be more exciting later. But the way it currently sits is just ended up being kind of a boring blah movie. Well, I'm sorry I made you watch it. (laughs) That's okay. Hopefully you got your cage fixed, I hope. I mean, it wasn't needing to be fixed. Well, that's fair. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. I love chatting with you about movies. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was very fun. Well, I'm glad. I'm very glad. Thank you for listening. We're available on SoundCloud and in iTunes in the podcast app. And you can follow us on Twitter at Obscurity underscore pod. Thanks. Bye.